I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on RadioPhoenix.org for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? Is it everything we have? Welcome to today's National Zoom News Briefing. I'm Sandy Close, Director of Ethnic Media Services. A picture's worth a thousand words. A photograph of Diane Feinstein on the cover of New York Magazine makes her look like a petrified mummy. And that's the point. The article questions her cognitive ability to serve as California Senator. Then there is the photo of Nancy Pelosi on the editorial page of the New York Times, again with that wizened look of advanced age, questioning her political judgment. There's a drumbeat of voices blaming gerontocracy. This morning, it referenced boomer gerontocracy for the ills of the Democratic Party. Our topic today is ageism and whether we're seeing amidst so many divisions in our society, a new wave of scapegoating older adults with no woke warriors there to defend them. Nor is this confined to politics. Elder Asians often seem to be singled out for hate crimes. There's also the worry that if vaccines become too scarce, healthcare will adopt a triage approach, prioritizing younger workers. How much do we discriminate against the old? Does this have harmful health impacts? What's behind it? To explore these questions, we are honored to introduce four speakers who are experts in various aspects of this field. Dr. Julie Allen, adjunct faculty associate at the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan, who was lead researcher on a recent medical paper on the experiences of everyday ageism and the health of older US adults. Dr. Louise Aronson, geriatrician and professor of medicine at UC San Francisco and author of Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine and Reimagining Life. Paul Clayman, author and national coordinator of Journalists Network on Generations and editor of Generation Beats Online. And Patricia M. D'Antonio, Vice President of Policy and Professional Affairs at the Gerontological Society of America and Executive Director of Reframing Aging Initiative. Now I turn the conference over to Sunita Sarabji, veteran journalist 
and associate editor of Ethnic Media Services and co-coordinator with Pilar Marrero of these Friday Zoom news briefings. Pilar, thank you. Thank you so much, Sandy, and thank you to all our speakers and reporters who have joined us today. And um, we have a very robust uh, a panel, a uh, group of speakers. So we'll kick it off immediately with Dr. Julie Ober-Allen. Uh, Dr. Allen, welcome. Thank you. Uh, and thanks to the organizers for selecting this important and, and timely topic. So it is well established that major instances of age-based discrimination are linked to actually quite a broad array of poor health outcomes amongst older adults. So I'm talking about things like being forced to retire or move out of one's home before one is interested in doing so. But there's another form of ageism, which I call everyday ageism. Uh, everyday ageism refers to sort of the routine ageism that older adults encounter in their day-to-day -day lives. So things like birthday cards with jokes about growing older or the plethora of anti-gray, anti-wrinkle, and anti-aging products. Comments like, you look so great for your age, or people assuming that older adults have memory issues or hearing loss, and also instances when older adults believe some of these stereotypes about aging and older adults themselves. So unfortunately, there's a lot less research about the potential negative health implications of everyday ageism when compared to other, uh, other isms, so racism, sexism, homophobia, things like that. And so that was really the motivation for this research, um, which was recently published in the JAMA Network Open. So I partnered with the National Poll on Healthy Aging at the University of Michigan to determine the prevalence of everyday ageism amongst older US adults, to identify groups that may experience more everyday ageism than others, and to investigate whether everyday ageism may be related to health. Um, we ended up creating a new scale because there weren't any existing ones that really were sort of capturing uh, this concept. Um, and it was made up of uh, questions about 10 commonplace examples of everyday ageism relevant to the lives of contemporary U.S. adults, um, including things like exposure to ageist messages, so social and contextual cues, reinforcing ageist prejudices, um, things like ageism, examples of ageism and in interpersonal interactions, uh, as well as internalized ageism. So when older adults believe ageist stereotypes themselves. We collected information from a nationally representative sample of 2048 U.S. adults between the ages of 50 and 80 in December 2019, so right before COVID. Um, and what we found is that over 93% of U.S. adults in this age range reported that they regularly experienced one or more form of everyday ageism on a regular basis, so uh, with significant frequency. We found that some population subgroups experienced more everyday ageism than others, such as those 65 to 80 when compared to older adults between the ages of 50 and 64, those of lower socioeconomic status, uh, and those who spent more time every day um, watching television, uh, browsing the internet, or reading magazines. Um, so differences by race and ethnicity were actually a bit surprising. We found that non-Hispanic white adults reported the most everyday ageism, followed by Hispanic and Latino adults, and that non-Hispanic black adults uh, actually reported the lowest amount. Uh, and unfortunately, we weren't able to calculate reliable estimates for other racial and ethnic groups due to the small numbers within our sample. In terms of health, 
Uh, we found that higher levels of everyday ageism were associated with every health indicator that we examined. And we looked at four, two general indicators of physical health and two of mental health. We found that higher levels of everyday ageism were associated with increased risk of evaluating one's physical health as fair or poor when compared to good, very good, or excellent. Um, we found that higher levels were associated with having multiple chronic health conditions, such as diabetes or heart disease, uh, evaluating one's mental health, mental health as fair or poor, and showing signs of um, depression. Now, because this was cross-sectional data, we can't say definitively that everyday ageism causes poor health. However, I posit that it does, and there's actually considerable support for some of the theorized pathways that I will share with you today. Um, although actually a fair amount of the research uh, supporting this is uh, actually in research linking um, everyday racial discrimination and health. So that's where a fair amount of this derives from. So one pathway, uh, everyday ageism may serve as a chronic source of stress in the lives of older adults. And this is believed to contribute to accelerated aging, increased risk for a broad array of chronic diseases, uh, as well as premature mortality. Another uh, pathway, um, everyday ageism affects healthcare seeking. If older adults believe stereotypes that loneliness or depression or health problems are inevitable parts of aging, they will be less likely to seek care or follow healthcare providers' recommendations. So for example, studies have shown that older adults who hold more negative self-perceptions of aging are less likely to take medications as prescribed. Alternatively, if older adults feel patronized or misunderstood or actively discriminated against when they do seek healthcare services, they may be less likely to do so, they do so in the future. And remember, this could be based on their interactions with their healthcare providers or the front office staff. This could be the way messages about health are framed, or it could be systemic issues such as procedures for making appointments. And finally, another important pathway is that ageism is embedded within our healthcare system in the US as well as in other countries, such that older adults um, receive poor quality care than their younger counterparts. Uh, and these range from uh, individual assumptions amongst healthcare providers about what type of um, situations warrant treatment versus those that don't. And for example, research again shows that older adults are less likely to receive medically indicated diagnostic tests than their younger counterparts. Uh, policies of healthcare systems and insurance companies regarding how healthcare services and resources are allocated um, on a regular and pretty consistent basis deny older adults um, essential medical procedures. For example, organ transplants. So some of these are life-saving procedures due exclusively to age and not due to any other uh, medical counterindicators. There's communication issues. So there's you know, the digital divide, there's the 15 minute uh, uh, healthcare physician visits. There's things like when my uh, older mother goes to the doctor and they say, welcome little lady, what's wrong with you today? I suspect she gets so irritated that it's distracting and it makes it difficult for her to communicate with her healthcare providers. And then finally, older adults are consistently and regularly excluded from uh, clinical trials, uh, oftentimes due to age alone. Dr. Allen, that was terrific. Thank you so much. I have a question for you. There was a recent article about long-term COVID in older adults and people brushing off long, uh, physicians brushing off long-term COVID in older adults is just signs of aging. Could you speak uh, uh, to, to that? 
Sure. And actually, I'll give another example that is um, in many ways funnier, but also sort of more upsetting. Um, oftentimes, older adults go to, to see their health care providers for pain issues uh, mm-hmm. or mobility issues. And the doctors will say, oh, you know, you're aging. So if your knee hurts, you know, that's just part of aging. And sometimes older adults might respond something like, well, my other knee is just as old and it's fine. <laughs> and so this, this has sort of been regularly documented that um, healthcare issues amongst older adults do not receive the treatment, whether it's COVID or, um, you know, mobility or arthritis issues or mental health issues, which um, we're actually getting better uh, in our healthcare systems of identifying those, but they do, they, they regularly get brushed off. And so older adults who actually make the effort to seek care leave not having received um, what they need and what they should have and what is medically indicated. But thank you for the question. Uh, Pilar Marrero has the next question. Pilar, welcome. No, no, I was just making a comment ah. uh, <laughs> to what Henrietta asked because I am someone who forgets things a lot. I, I forget people's names. I forget things that happened. And I'm in my 50s and I have had this situation for years. So I was just commenting, this is not age related. It's just something that some people have. Yeah. And Dr. Allen, I had another question for you before we move on to Dr. Aronson. How did you choose 50 as the age for assessing older adults? <laughs> I, was, I was surprised to see that age. <laughs> Sure, there's a couple different reasons for that. Um, The National Poll on Healthy Aging, that's their sort of typical age range that they're interested in. Um, AARP is one of their their funders. And so AARP is definitely sort of interested in sort of the range of older adults and some of the the changes and transitions uh, experienced by that larger sort of age range. Another piece of it is a lot of work on um, racial health disparities does sort of start looking at younger ages because what we find is that with socially marginalized groups, particularly particularly racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S., we see signs that we associate with aging at at a much younger age, often at sort of 45 to 50. And so we really wanted to be able to um, sort of capture some of that as well. And then I'll also add, we found fairly reasonably high rates of everyday ageism reported amongst sort of the the younger aspects of our age range. So it, it wasn't just those over the age of 65 that were reporting everyday ageism. The 50-year-olds were as well, um, pretty consistently, and the vast majority of them. So while everyday ageism may be sort of a bigger issue amongst um, those at the older end of the age range, it's still affecting those that are younger. It may be affecting them in slightly different ways, um, but that we are finding that, that it affects the 50-year-olds as well.
Hall with this classic lean on me sometimes you gotta lean on different people when you're going through certain situations and those who say they are your friends would gladly be that post to lean on and uh, you should return the favor uh, pay it forward when somebody else needs you in tight situations they should be able to call on you, to lean on you, to help them get through from point A to point B, to make their lives better, as others have made your life better. Brother Bill Withers, lean on me. One way listeners like you can support KRDP is by becoming one of our sustaining donors. Your financial gift supports the diverse programming you hear on KRDP. It also provides opportunities for youth, interns, and members of the Valley community to learn radio broadcasting and for coverage of local arts, culture, and politics. And don't forget, your financial contribution is tax-deductible. For more information or to sign up to become a KRDP sustaining donor, call 602-254-6636 or visit our website, listen, the number two, krdp.com, and click on the donate button on the top menu. We thank you for your generous support of KRDP. And without your support, uh, the Alvin Galloway Show would not be on. And we look forward to you to continue to help us as we try to help the community. This is Tara Laurie of Youth World Education Project. You're listening to The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show, Sundays 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for conversation, music, and culture. Check out Youth World Education Project at youthwep.org. We are going to move on to Dr. Louise Aronson, who was a Pulitzer uh, finalist in 2020 for her new book. Uh, Dr. Aronson, welcome. Uh, It's great to be here. Um, And I was given this topic about how ageism affects women. Well, we just heard from Dr. Allen how ageism affects everybody as they get older. Well, it turns out women get older in larger numbers than men, actually pretty significantly larger numbers. So the most recent data we have is 2016. And for people ages 65 and up, there were 79 men for every 100 women. That varies a lot. In in people who are ages 65 to 74, it's 88 men per 100 women. But if you look at people age 85 and older, there are only 53 men per 100 women. 
Um, this may have changed a little bit with COVID because COVID killed older people disproportionately and more older people are women. So new numbers may change. Also, the gap is getting a bit smaller in the United States, um, but for all the wrong reasons. It's because women are dying more because there's more obesity, there's more women smoking, and there's more women drinking too much. So it would be better if the gap were getting smaller because we were helping men not to die, but unfortunately, that's not what I can report. Um, so, so number one reason, ageism is everywhere, more older women. The second reason um, is that, that ageism disproportionately affects women. There is something called gendered ageism, and um, that's sort of the intersectional disadvantage of where sexism and ageism can happen together. And as with every type of intersectional discrimination, it's often the sum is what is it? What's that called? The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the effect is, is augmented. Um, it's not just ageism plus sexism. sexism. It's, a, it's a third big category. Um, part of this is financial. Um, so women make less money um, than men. Uh, generally, on average, 82 cents on the dollar for all ages. But there's actually a triple threat for some women. So if you are a woman of color and an older woman, so you have racism, sexism, and ageism together. So for instance, if you take Black and Latino women, and this isn't even old, so they don't, I couldn't find any statistics for older Black and Latino women compared to white men, but across all ages, Black and Latino women make only 65% of what a white man makes for doing the exact same work and having the exact same level of education. Um, even black women with advanced degrees only make 70% of what white men make with advanced degrees. So you start out with lower earnings, then you have maybe less earnings and certainly less contribution to your pension from your earnings, but also you miss time on maternity leave. You miss time on sick childcare as we saw hugely during pandemic. You miss time taking care of older relatives often. Um, so all these things add up to a double or triple jeopardy for women financially. They enter old age with less money and fewer resources. The second part of gendered ageism is something called lookism. And Sandy referred to this at the beginning. Um, there, there is this incredible statistic where they say lookism impacts women under age 35. And there's actually a lot of data on Black and Latina young women being disproportionately affected, but then also over age 40. So apparently there's this five-year period <laughs> in which people are okay. I, yeah, I just, I have to laugh or I will cry. Um, but what that means is really uh, the, the importance of youthful and attractive appearance. It matters so much more uh, for women than for men. And that has bad effects in three ways. There's a lot of pressure for women to look youthful. You know, the, the hair dye, the, you know, all the cosmetic surgeries, etc. cetera. Um, and as a woman who used to do that and doesn't do it anymore, it's stressful not doing it also because you feel like everybody else is doing it and you look older. So you, it's lose-lose as far as I can tell. 
Um, it can erode women's self-esteem and confidence, um, which affects their performance. But on the flip side, they're also evaluated as being less valuable, less competent, and are more likely to be fired with the same qualifications and, and performance reviews as men. Okay. Um, I'm going to end on a cheerful note, I promise. Um, so the, the third difference is um, <clears throat> that women and men have different burdens as they age. Women are much more likely to be informal caregivers, unpaid caregivers. In fact, most caregiving in this country is done by women, by informal caregivers. And actually, in long-term care, for instance, 90% of the poorly paid caregivers are women. So women are doing a lot of caregiving, either unpaid or paid poorly. Um, even after retirement, women, because women do most home-related work, even after they retire, there's more burdens and stress about getting things done. Um, race and ethnicity also play in here because depending on cultural attitudes, traditional attitudes and gender inequity in the household, there may be much more burden placed on the woman over time. And as I said before, women are more likely to be poor, especially older women of color. So the triple jeopardy again. The fourth thing is there are different health experiences of old age. So there is something called the morbidity mortality paradox. I said at the beginning that women are more likely to become old. Well, that means men are more likely to die, but women are more likely to have many chronic diseases as they grow old, to have functional limitations and disabilities, um, to have pain, to have a lower um, well-being. Um, they're also, particularly as people move into the older ages, are more likely to have loneliness. And we know loneliness is really bad for the health, but it's often because they have outlived their partner, their husband. Um, and also as a result of that, they having cared for often the husband prior to his death are more likely to be institutionalized and institutionalized in institutions that have lower quality of care. So we know women of color are more likely to be in those, those um, lower quality institutions. And we know people who are in lower quality nursing homes are more likely to die of everything, not just COVID, but a heart attack, whatever else. Um, and then, you know, long-term care generally is, is sort of its own category um, with a consequence of a lifetime of discrimination. Um, so I promised I would end on a note of hope. In the United States, there is one good um, statistic here, which is that gender inequality in health as we age is influenced um, most strongly by two things, level of education and healthy lifestyle. Now, that's probably confounded. So, yes, you could go back and, you know, get more education in your old age. That's actually a great way of keeping the brain healthy but it's probably the healthy lifestyle that makes the bigger difference. Eating lots of fruits and vegetables, not so much meat, not so much processed foods, and most importantly of all, being physically active. And we often say, oh, don't be too active. You're a woman, don't break a sweat. I mean, I had a grandmother who told me that a few years back, but still, um, you know, but among active older Americans, um, women don't have worse health than men. So women of all backgrounds 
um, at in old age, if they could become more active and eat more healthily, could have less chronic disease and feel better and function better. With that, I will stop. Thank you, Dr. Aronson. We have a question that came in through the chat. Is it the fear of economic loss that makes people more irritated about older people in the workplace? Well, it's actually, I, I always find this sort of fascinating. So the media, well, speaking to the media, so I shouldn't blame you, but it, we do see this in the media a lot, um, that, that um, they will blame older adults um, for taking jobs of younger people. There is huge amounts of data that age diverse workplaces have a happier workforce and better productivity. Um, often younger people and older people do different jobs in a workplace, and they also do those jobs differently. They bring different skill sets. Yes, the younger person may be faster with certain technology, but the older person is actually more likely to come to the right conclusion based on evidence. These are things that could work together very nicely. We also tend to say, um, oh, get out of the way for younger people to take jobs. And then we say, older people are a burden, they're not working. You cannot have it both ways. And we set the retirement age at a time when on average Americans dies at age 67. Now we live much longer than that. Um, and people who work are more mentally and physically healthy. So maybe we don't want to to work. I know I don't want to work as many hours as I'm working now in another 10 years, but that doesn't mean I don't want to work. Maybe we just need to rethink what work means as we get older. And by that, I don't mean paying people a fraction, you know, of what they've been paid to do the same work. Absolutely. Two more questions. The first from Mira Kaimal of uh, India Currents and the second from Pilar Marrero. Mira, welcome. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, great. Uh, hi, uh, I, I had a question. I'm working on a project on uh, the barriers that aging South Asian seniors face. And certainly language barriers are a problem. Um, usually um, non-English speaking seniors need an advocate with them when they go to the doctor or they're trying to access any kind of service. And I was wondering if there is research that is looking at this issue about ageism in ethnic communities. Such a good question. Yes, um, there are people looking at this, uh, starting to look at it more and more. Generally, it's we've looked at age or we've looked at language barriers and people haven't put them together too much. But there is, um, in the American Geriatric Society, we have a subsection group, which includes many researchers looking at some of the, the additive barriers for older adults. Um, in California, it's important to know that the clinician is not legally allowed to see the patient if they don't have a qualified interpreter with them. Now, the patient can say, I would rather have my adult child or grandchild interpret, but the, the clinician is required to, if, if not do that, bring in a real person or use one of those telehealth options. So a person should never be left without a translator in this state. We're very lucky. Most states don't have that law. Um, 
but but looking looking at those two things really makes sense. Um, most of the literature on South Asians has to do with heart disease, but I know and or diabetes. I know some researchers at UCSF like Alka Kanaya um, are looking at this, and she might be a person to speak to. I don't know if she's looked at ageism in particular, but what she looks at affects older people disproportionately. So she might be someone to speak to. Thank you, and Pilar. Uh, Dr. Aronson, thank you so much for your expertise. Um, I am curious if you know or have seen any data regard that compares, maybe it's a cultural issue, but or cultural social issue, compares how ageism takes place in the U.S. versus other countries um, or other cultures. Um, is there anything, because for example, we do know that culturally, it is unthinkable, for example, in, in many Latino communities, you know, in, in Latin America, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it's unthinkable to put your mother or father in a home. Mm -hmm. So that's really easy to do here. And that's what everyone pretty much does. Uh, so I consider that a difference in attitudes about age. Um, Absolutely. What do you think about the comparison? Yeah, so there, there have been articles that compare. There was one recently in Frontiers, which Frontiers? I can try and find it for you if you'd like. Um, and it, it talked about there are significant differences in the degree of uh, gender discrimination in old age among developed and developing countries with developed countries actually sometimes looking worse. Um, it was also interesting in pandemic that the risks are pros and cons, right? So in this country, we think of all the old people dying in the congregate facilities. But in Italy, where people lived at home, old people died because their family came home and brought the COVID. So it's, we just need better solutions, clearly. But, th but there is data on that. It varies, obviously, by country, continent, and culture. I'm interested. Thank you. Dr. Anson, thank you so much for joining us today. Please stick on. And Dr. Allen, please stick on. We have, uh, we'll have uh, more questions for you at the end of the briefing. Programming on KRDP is financially supported by Westside Blues and Jazz. Located at the northeast corner of 59th Avenue and Bell Road in Glendale. Performers include the one and only Big Pete Pearson, Beth Lederman, the Sugar Thieves, and the legendary Charles Lewis. Westsideblues.com, also on Facebook. Hashtag Westside Jazz and Blues.
That was Terrence Blanchard, Solitude. We next welcome Paul Clayman, who is going to be speaking about ageism in politics. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Sunita and Sandy, for holding this Zoom and for inviting me to speak today on my second favorite topic. If you want to know, my favorite is my grandson, who's about to turn 10. Well, I tell people that I've aged with the topic of aging. It's exactly 50 years ago this summer that I started writing my book, Senior Power, Growing Old Rebelliously. Well, at the time, I thought I was taking on a huge new area of prejudice that would add to all that was being confronted around racism and sexism. It seemed that the isms were on the run. Well, a half century later, we've had some good runs, but we've also learned that prejudice is a cockroach that never stops regrouping and coming back like Putin's troops. Age bias is particularly pernicious because as we're now seeing, even the liberal media get scared by a president they wanted and who won, but now they fear he might be too old to win again. He's too old, said two stories this week in the New York Times and apparently a third one today I haven't seen, even though they also reported that Biden is working hard every day, unlike Trump did. And does anyone remember the younger George W. Bush in the wake of Hurricane Katrina telling us that his man Brownie was doing a heck of a job? Hmm. President Biden deserves scrutiny and criticism, but based on his merit, not on his age, much less all of the speculation about his ability years from now if he gets reelected. Prejudice always goes beyond one person or situation that's cited. Multiple stories questioning Biden's age or Feinstein's have then jumped to calls for sweeping aside leaders in their 70s and 80s because they form a gerontocracy of people presumed to be out of touch with the country's needs. This ugly, ugly term that's coming up, gerontocracy, literally means a rigid clutch of old people in charge of holding on to the status quo. Everyone wants change, of course, but articles like the one in New York Magazine last month about Senator Feinstein, who's 88, leap from speculation about her apparent memory issues to blaming all the, the old leaders for gridlock in Washington. Well, how about the chairman of the powerful Senate Budget Committee? That would be Bernie Sanders, age 80. He went on a Fox News debate recently and crushed GOP Senator Lindsey Graham or consider Representative Benny Thompson, 74, who's been so powerful in chairing the January 6th committee. Maybe the fault lies more in our lack of imagination on practical, if long-term solutions, say on voting rights and unfettered money in politics and fighting partisan gerrymandering. 
Rather than catering to the intolerance of ageism, journalists, especially in ethnic media, have an opportunity to bring a new perspective to our ailing and aging country. That includes exploring alternatives that fit our new age of mass longevity. I mean, just think of it and what we've been hearing. Average life expectancy, even in developing countries, is now almost two full generations longer than people who lived only 100 years ago. That changes everything. Yet ageism in the United States infects vital growth areas of our society. It's not only in overt advertising for things like anti-aging creams, but in underlying systems in healthcare, employment discrimination, or mainstream media's political and economic reporting. Too many economic and political leaders still see our rapidly aging population as a looming budgetary, bud uh, budgetary burden. We need more stories about the contributions to be made, including in more taxes by the 50 plus population. If we can eliminate barriers like, uh, you know, like those in housing and job discrimination. And we need more stories about the health and social disparities that keep lower income and ethnic seniors from being the best and healthiest that they can be in our aging world. So that's why back in 2010, EMS's Sandy Close and I established the Journalists in Aging Fellows Program with the Gerontological Society of America. And I'm so happy to see Trish uh, here to speak. The program is, was, we created the program to provide reporters basic training in the key background information and the expert sources, including many experts in communities of color. Finally, just to give you an idea, some of the recent stories we have had have examined, for example, the pandemic's impact, impact on entire families and family structures in Latino and Bangladeshi communities, among others. On the positive side, we've had, we had a great piece on how black grandmothers in Atlanta organized a walking group to help older women stay healthy and connected during the pandemic. Just look around you. There are untold and underreported stories on, uh, on aging everywhere. So with that, I'll say thank you very much. And I hope to see some of you applying for this year's Journalists and Aging Fellowships. Uh, Paul, before we take questions, I want to mention that I was a 2014 GSA fellow, and yes. it was one of the <laughs> most amazing fellowships I, I've done. Um, so uh, I, I encourage reporters to apply uh, this year. I was going to ask you, Paul, and there are several questions for you in the chat, but I was going to ask you first, if you know, could you talk a little bit more about how the media plays into this, given the fact that most reporters now are in their 30s and 40s? Does their age have anything to do with how they are looking at uh, Biden and Feinstein, for example? I think probably, but, you know, just as bad I've found over the years are 
older editors who are in their 50s and even 60s. They often haven't really understood the issues of aging. It's a big topic and they haven't taken it on. They haven't been challenged and they will buy right into these things. Uh, they will also take their cues from major media. So I'm so sorry to see the New York Times and Washington Post and other major media of an NPR, even NPR News, picking up on this whole idea uh, coming out of the Democratic Party leadership that we have to clear things away. This all comes from Biden, you know, looking, uh, looking older, uh, even though all the reports that go into details that criticize him, you know, and it's because he's got a low, this low approval rating. Well, why does he have a low approval rating? Um, you know, you've got uh, a war that started in February of this year uh, that is affecting worldwide uh, economics and food supplies uh, and gas supplies. You've got the pandemic continuing to come back. You've got a lot of challenges that uh, Mr. Biden faced, President Biden faced. Um, it's unfortunate. He also made some stumbles and so on, as every president and politician does. So he's being hit, but now his own party is coming down on him, and I oh, strictly for ageist reasons. And it's unfortunate. As I say, you look at Benny Thompson, who's been amazing on the uh, January 6th committee, just an incredible uh, leader and uh, 74 years old. Who wouldn't want him in charge? at this point of that committee and Bernie Sanders. So yeah, it's it comes through the media um, and it's an easy sell. Also the economic uh, you know, policy people. You know, what I, I'll tell you just to, you know, just to conclude that I've, I've watched now and written for over 30 years, 30 to 40 years about what I call the split personality of, uh, of aging and journal, of the coverage of aging and journalism. It's the feature reporters, it's the, uh, the local reporters, um, and, uh, and the, uh, even the, the economics reporters who get it right, who really understand and look at the issues on uh, retirement and so on, and caregiving, family caregiving issues. But then it gets, you know, when it comes to the political reporters and the economic reporters, economics reporters who are in Washington, they're disconnected from uh, the people at the local level or even in other departments in their own newspapers. And they get in and inundated with all of these big numbers, you know, uh, that show a burden for the future that, are, that go unquestioned. Thank you so much for joining us. There are still a number of questions for you in the chat and uh, hopefully you can answer them. Please stick on for our final round of questions. We next welcome Patricia D'Antonio, um, who will speak about how we move on from ageism at both an individual and societal level. Uh, Trish, welcome. Um, thank you so much for the invitation. So pleased to be here um, with the distinguished panel and with all of you today. Um, to share with you uh, work that I am honored to be able to lead on behalf of 10 leading aging organizations called the Reframing Aging Initiative. Um, this initiative is a long-term evidence-based social change initiative 
designed to improve the public's understanding of aging um, and the many contributions of older people to society. And it's our assertion that through this um, evidence, um, we will be able to counter ageism and improve support for policies and programs that support us all as we age. Um, so what I will um, share with you is that we worked with um, a research partner, the Frameworks Institute, uh, to conduct uh, research. Uh, we had more than 12,000 um, people, a representative sample of um, Americans. So this is uh, a U.S.-based um, research program, a U.S.-based um, uh, initiative. Um, and what we um, wanted to learn uh, is what exactly did the public think about aging um, as compared to um, how aging experts feel about aging? And um, what we learned is uh, when this research was conducted that pretty much ageism was not considered a concern in, in the public, in the general public, um, a court of public opinion. Um, and in our surveys, we also knew that those who work in aging found that ageism was so important because of the reasons that we've heard already, um, that ageism impacts our health, it impacts our social lives, it impacts um, our, our work, uh, it impa impacts our, our, our um, well-being. And so what we wanted to do was conduct the research to learn how we can shift that um, understanding of aging. And so when I talk about this often, uh, one thing that I would want to make clear, and I, I'll share as soon as I um, can in the chat, um, a couple um, pieces of, uh, of research that are, that's helpful, is, um, you know, we know that we, um, that there are interventions and there are ways that we communicate that can help um, people think differently about aging and we can drive people towards those split second decisions about aging. Um, you know, when we see the birthday cards and we hear so much, it's really implicit um, biases that we have um, that we need to address. And we know that we can, through um, these communication strategies, start to advance and change people's understanding of ageism. And, and often when I'm talking about ageism, I want to remind people that ageism is life course, right? So it's not only ageism toward older people, but we hear ageism toward younger people as well. So we hear ageism across the life course. And we really have to think about what that impact is for all of us. What I get to do is talk about um, what I would suggest as the more productive ways to think about that we can communicate about aging um, and, and tell a more complete story of aging. So one thing that we wanna be sure that we aren't doing is um, not recognizing that there are challenges for us as we age, but also recognize that um, we have an accumulated wisdom Right, we have um, that that comes as we age, and that's important. One of the important things that we talk about um, discussing in in our messages, right? Um, we want to recognize um, Americans value ingenuity, right? We're we're the we're the we're um, we're a culture that believes that problems can be solved, right? And so, whenever there's a challenge. Um, we know that um, contributions of all of us as we age, including older people, um, can provide those supports 
to address those challenges. We also know that in our policies, we have a collective responsibility for, um, for society. And so we're all interconnected and we wanna bring that to mind in our communications. And when we do, we start to see the, the needle move and shift into how people think about aging and recognizing that we're all aging, right? I mean, that's the one thing that I think is really important for all of us is, you know, we're all aging. Um, we also want to be sure that in our communications, we are recognizing what surrounds us shapes us. So what are those determinants, those social determinants of health that, that are important for us to consider um, as we are trying to get past people's dominant thinking about aging right now, which is some, which is negative, right? And, and how can we cue messages to people think um, more productively, more completely about aging? So in recognizing that as we age, people may need assistive devices, we recognize that that's a good thing that you have a hearing aid. It's a good thing that you have access to a wheelchair or an access to um, a shuttle, some transportation to be able to get around. Why? Because then we know that we are able to feel that we contribute, we continue to contribute to society, right? And it's recognized. So we even recognize in our frailty, when people are more, um, when people may have more chronic conditions and more challenge, there's still that opportunity to contribute because of that accumulated wisdom that we have gained um, over, over our, our life course. Um, quite often, it's important for us to highlight and tell a more complete story about aging that shows the creative solutions that shows that demonstrates that we are highly innovative. Um, these are the kind of values that um, we know that will get people to think about aging in a much more complete way. We also know that it's important to call out ageism when we hear it and understand what ageism is. And it doesn't mean that um, people are, uh, constantly overtly ageist, there are, there are times where implicitly, um, myself included, there's some ageism that, that just comes up because, you know, since I was four years old, I've been hearing the jokes, I've been seeing the TV shows. And, and so it takes a, a little bit of time to break those, um, break those models that are in my brain to make me think about aging in, in a certain way. So calling it out and making people aware of their implicit biases is really an important part of the process. And, and we know through some of the research is that when we make people aware of those implicit biases, those snap judgments that we might make about aging, that we can start to get people to think about it differently. When we tell a story about, when we talk about aging in our communication strategies, we not only try, we not only work to bring up the values that we know get shift people's thinking and aging, we also want to be sure that we are including concrete systemic solutions in our messages, in our stories, so that we can understand um, the impact on all of us as we age, right? So transportation systems that include um, bus stops in front of libraries, in front of senior centers are helpful for us all, right? If you think about it, so older people are able to participate, are able to participate in a way that uh, continues to recognize independence, yet 
that's there's that interdependence on the transportation system. Um, when we have age neutral workplace policies, you know, high on hiring, also on advancement, right? Because we recognize that that intergenerational opportunity in the workplace is really something that should be valued in in a in a company in an organization and can contribute to um, future successes. Um, one of the other things that for us as, a, as an aging organization and several of the other organizations that are part of the, of, the, of the Reframing Aging Initiative is that when advisory committees are set up, whether they are federal, state, local advisory committees, that there's a diversity of all ages because that includes um, a, a richness for um, all of our um, all of our communities and all of the types of work that we do in these advisory committees. So those are some examples of the way we can include those systemic solutions in, in the work that we do. I know that um, I have like so many more uh, things that I would love to talk to you about and um, our uh, research is, um, is available for you to review and I'll be able to show you, I'll be able to share some of that with you. I did want to point out as you are all journalists that one of the ways that we are working to advance this initiative um, is to work through style manuals and really pleased that the Associated Press Manual of Style has included um, some work uh, related to bias-free language that we should all use when we are publishing. And, and, and it's around references to how we refer to older people, older adults, or to specify the age range that we are trying to, uh, that we're writing about. If you think about it, if you say, oh, the 60 plus population or the 65 plus population, you're really talking about an age span of 40 years. And that could be quite different. And it doesn't really give probably what, uh, give the, um, give the example that you're really trying to give when you're writing. So if, you, if you're writing a story about, some, about people aged 65 to 75, you, you, should, you should reference that. So I can point you in the direction of where that, that is with the AP Manual of Style if you're interested and um, happy to continue the, the conversation. And again, thank you for the opportunity to, um, to speak with you. Trish, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to ask Henrietta Burroughs to ask a question and then we'll move to all speakers to conclude. Henrietta. Thanks again, Sunita. I'm just wondering if we shouldn't somehow recognize that we have to strike a balance. For example, I can, uh, during the Vietnam War, the younger generation was very resentful that it was the older generation sending them into war. And the younger generation feels that they don't have the power to make certain decisions. It was a long time in terms of just getting the right to vote. And so there is a rebellion that was put in motion against those who were older. It's the older people who have the money. It's the older people who have the power. So where it seems to me we have to have a mutual respect mm -hmm. where those who are older respect those who are younger and we need to strike that balance and there are those who would say well diane feinstein um and and president biden they've been in power for more than 40 years and at what point do younger generations get a chance to make the decisions 
that those who are older have always had the opportunity of making that affects everybody else's lives. Henrietta, your question um, uh, would be an excellent one to end the briefing with. Um, if Can I open it up to all speakers? Yeah, could I uh, uh, chime in on this? Uh, uh, as someone who was actually one of those younger uh, people fighting the against the uh, activist, uh, an activist against the uh, Vietnam War, I actually was tried and convicted of refusing induction into the U.S. Army as a draft resistor uh, in San Francisco. And I'll tell you that I was also in the civil rights movement at that time. Henrietta, it's a good question because, um, you know, yes, power also always is held by the, you know, by the, the more staid conservative uh, types. But we were also uh, in the movement then and uh, the young people now looking toward older generations, we boomers, for our guidance uh, and organizational ability. And um, I, you know, there are just, you know, it, so it can't be a matter of let's move aside the people who have been in, in, in power for 40 years. Well, you know, <laughs> some of those people like Benny Thompson are really coming to the fore now and doing a fantastic job with uh, a perspicacity that, uh, you know, younger, uh, younger people may or may not have. Which younger people are you talking about? You're talking about a, a Jim Jordan, for God's sake, so wants to, you know, or somebody like that. So, you know, we really have to look individually. Yes, we should be critical of a Dianne Feinstein or Joe Biden, as I said, but, you know, on the basis of their performance, of uh, their policies, of what they're saying and doing, and then, you know, and then go to the ballot box and put up great candidates. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Dr. Allen, would you like to give us your 30-second soundbite to end uh, the, this briefing? Sure. Um, yes. Uh, as some of our research has shown, over 93% of U.S. adults between the ages of 58 and 80 regularly experience everyday ageism. So maybe every day, maybe multiple times a day. Uh, and these um, often perceived as minor instances of everyday ageism may be much more harmful to health um, than, than we realize. So it's, it's an important topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Aronson, your 30-second soundbite. Okay. So I guess my last thought would be the key thing should be the problem you're having with the person's behavior, so the behavior itself. You know, they're, I don't like their policies or I think they did something. I, I feel like age, whether it's, young or old is is the same as race is the same as gender or gender identity it's not about the identity or the subpopulation um, that's not a reason to like or dislike someone um, or or to you know say they shouldn't be a politician but if you know if a person is forgetful in a way that impacts their performance, doesn't matter what age they are, maybe they can't do that particular job and should do something else. Um, if a person doesn't have judgment, there are all these things, but it isn't about age. Are there some things more common with age? Yes, but there are good and bad things that happen more commonly with age. So I guess not using that as shorthand um, for all kinds of stereotypes would um, make the world a better place for all of us to keep aging into as I think we all hope to do. Thank you, Dr. Aronson. And Trish, you have the last word. 
Well, thank you so much. Um, I think, I, you know, I have to agree with my colleagues. And one thing that we have to remember is the number of birthday candles on your cake uh, simply is a recognition of celebrating um, celebrating our years and our, our, our wisdom. Um, it is important to think about someone's functional age when we're thinking around um, someone's capability in, in a job, in a position. And that's what we try to um, talk about more so that we can recognize how we become more diverse as we age. I have a colleague who says, um, you know, we start out as molds and we become originals as we age. And we should think about that and recognize um, that the inter our intergenerational experience is really what makes us a, a much richer culture and a much richer um, society. And uh, so I did share some things in the um, in, in the chat around that research that's really important to consider. Thank you so much to all of our speakers and reporters. I imagine that there are going to be some great headlines coming out of this briefing. So I look forward to that and uh, see you all next Friday. You have been listening to a briefing hosted by Ethnic Media Services. We thank Ethnic Media Services that continues to bring us pertinent information that affects our lives every day. This is the Alvin Galloway Show, and don't forget to check us out on Facebook and also to check out our podcast. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast shows. And as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great we'll see you next week be blessed thank you for listening to the alvin galloway show podcast we hope you like our show and if you do we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily no donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.